In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kerry Ashton. This episode was absolutely fantastic. I'm so grateful that she came on because Kerry's had to fly all the way in today from Belfast. So obviously for that, we are incredibly grateful. The reason why I'm so, so excited about having Dr. Kerry on this podcast is she has a very unique background. Dr. Kerry spent 15 years in the NHS where she specialises in rheumatology, but she's also pivoted more recently and has done several qualifications in functional medicine. This puts her in an incredibly unique position to talk about the traditional medical system, the potential flaws that it has, and give us some insight into now how she works with her female clients from a more holistic and integrated approach to health and well-being. Kerry is one of the few people in the world that has this full list of qualifications and experience, and I'm incredibly excited for you to listen to today's episode where Carrie talks us through some of the issues in the traditional way in which we um, treat and help serve chronic health issues but also how she now works with female clients. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did and as always if you've got any questions I'd absolutely love to know your thoughts and feedback. So I want to say the biggest thank you, I think, of any guest for coming on so far, because you've flown in just for the podcast, which I can't explain how grateful we are. And specifically because, as we've mentioned off air, as I apologise in advance for almost embarrassing you a little bit again, because I know you might not admit it, but you have the most incredible qualifications list. I think I've really ever seen from my standpoint in terms of being able to deliver a very holistic and well-rounded approach to, to health and well-being, um, which is why I'm yeah incredibly grateful to have you on the show today. And I can't wait to get into this conversation with you. So Dr. Kerry Ashton, thank you so much for being here. Okay, no, thank you for having me in to chat today. I'm just really pleased to be here. So yes. <laughs> uh, amazing. Yeah, this is going to be a great episode because as I said, you're, you're background kind of coming into you know the medical world but then the qualifications you've done since I think are going to give us such a unique perspective on some of the issues that we're going to talk about but let's obviously set that that tone go right back to the beginning tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you've ended up where you are today. Yeah so I am a, I'm a medical doctor I am a consultant in rheumatology and I suppose I've done most of my undergraduate and postgraduate training in Northern Ireland so that started quite a long time ago, back in 2002, um, and I did my five years at university. Then after that, as you know, the, the medical training process is quite long, so we tend to work through different specialties. So I've sort of spent time in A&E, cardiology, um, surgery, general medicine, and even a bit of psychiatry at some stage as well. Um, and then in the later stages of your training, that's when you start to specialise. So I spent those last number of years of training really focused on, rheumato on rheumatology. So rheumatology, um, that's really the sort of diseases that affect the muscles, joints, tendons and connective tissue. And they can be degenerative or autoimmune in, in nature. So I suppose that all finished around 2017. And at that stage, my husband, who is also a doctor, was doing a fellowship in Canada. I went with him. Um, and I suppose if I'm honest, at that stage, I was probably a bit burnt out. Um, I felt that I had worked so hard for so long and it was all a bit of an anticlimax. Um, I just wasn't quite sure that this was really what I wanted to do or how I wanted to practice. So I ended up just taking a bit of time out. That's when I coached in a CrossFit gym. So I did my CrossFit level one um, and worked in a gym in Edmonton then. And I also did some further training in sports and exercise medicine as well. Um, when we came home then, I think I did fall back into that kind of familiar trap again. Um, I did some locum consultant work um, in the Belfast Trust and then actually took a 
post in an NHS hospital in Taunton um, in Somerset. So I was traveling backwards and forwards for the last two years. And really over that time, um, I still within the NHS felt that I wasn't really doing the, the best that I could to help people. Um, and that's when I started to look sort of outside the, the more traditional sphere and really look at sort of functional medicine and, and did some training um, and modules within that as well. So that's kind of my background and, and where I am now. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. And I think those modules in the functional space, there was quite a few as well, wasn't there? Bioenergetics, endocrinology. Um, yeah, you've, you're very, very well-rounded amount of research. Yeah, so the, those modules, they're, they're excellent. They cover such a, a broad range of, of different conditions. Um, and, you know, some people maybe think functional medicine, it's a little bit out there, but actually their stuff, it's 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 all evidence-based. It's all sort of research-based. Um, and I think, you know, those of us who, you know, come from a medical background, we, we use all of that information really well and try and combine that with the more traditional sort of medicine as well yeah no I love that I would love to understand at what kind of point in your I guess let's call it traditional medical career you maybe went okay there's maybe something missing here and I need to learn some new information or some new skills and a slightly different area um you know uh my, my, my specialty rheumatology, it's very clinic based. So I spend a lot of time in that outpatient setting. And so many of those conditions that we treat, so rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, osteoarthritis, they're all classed as chronic conditions. And when we think of chronic disease, it's also those other things like cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes. And, you know, chronic disease, it's just so common. Um, up to 80% of us are going to have one chronic condition by the time we're 60. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. Um, up to 60% of us are going to have more than one by that stage. So, like, it's just so common, we're starting to think of it as normal. So what happens then, you come to your rheumatology clinic and we, we start talking about your joint pain or whatever else it is that you're seeing me for. And when we delve into your medical history... You start to discover that it, it's not just one thing. These patients usually have a list of other problems. Okay, so they, they come and they've maybe on medication for their diabetes, um, their their thyroid, they've got hypertension, they've maybe seen a cardiologist at some stage and had maybe cardiac stents. Sometimes there's a history of cancer uh, and sometimes people are, are overweight as well. So it's not just one thing. And quite often they've seen many other specialists. So I think the thing is we, we all tend to work in silos. You see a cardiologist for your heart, you see a hepatologist for your liver, you see a rheumatologist for your joint disease and no one ever just stands back and looks at everything as a whole. So I think <laughs> you come into the rheumatology clinic um, and if you have a autoimmune or inflammatory condition, what happens next is that in addition to all of the other medication that you're on, we then start this sort of cascade of really potent immunosuppressants that you're going to be on for life, okay? And, you know, we have so much wonderful research in all of these drugs, um, and, uh, you know, and in that setting, they, they seem to work really well. But in clinical practice, what I felt was there was a very small number of people who have a good response. So in a few people, these drugs are life-changing, but in so many people, you see this partial response or a non-sustained response. And then there's another group of people where nothing seems to work. So we keep throwing things at them. We give them an anti-TNF, we give them an IL-6 blocker, we give them some medication that's going to destroy their B cells. But despite that, they've got this ongoing chronic inflammation and we never get them well, we never get them back to full health. So. I always felt like we're just, we're missing something. There's something that we're not addressing here. And I think the way that we practice within the NHS, it's very reactive. We wait until people are sick. We wait until people are desperate before we intervene. And 
this is something that CrossFit do talk about quite a lot. They they have their illness to wellness continuum. So you have optimal health at one side and you have chronic disease and ill health down the other. And we don't just jump from one end to the other. This is a gradual process. So it takes years, sometimes decades before these chronic diseases emerge. And I think there is this tendency sort of when, when you when you are in medicine that when people come to you with with symptoms um, and symptoms that maybe don't quite add up to a disease, something that doesn't fit nicely into a box, that quite often we just say, oh, there's nothing wrong or come back, you know, when there is something wrong. And that just leaves people sort of really struggling um, and they don't really get the support and things that they need at that time. Um, I think sort of what I realise as well is that this is, have sort of really applies to women as well. I think women have a much more difficult time sort of in this sort of traditional sphere. Um, when we look at all of our um, sort of guidelines and, and treatment strategies, we, we are living in a world that's been designed for men. All of these things have been studied, tested and designed with, with men in mind. And even if you think about a heart attack, so those classical symptoms of a heart attack, that's that central crushing chest pain that radiates to your left arm. So those are sort of the classical symptoms that a man presents with, but quite often women do not present like this. So they may not have pain, they may have pain elsewhere, they may just have some nausea, vomiting, some sweating, or they might just feel very fatigued. Um, and because those symptoms are not typical, um, not typical of a way a man presents, they're called atypical. So like we are not atypical, we are over 50% of the population. You know, we are women and we deserve better than this. Um, and I think just because we are so complex, you know, we have periods, we have babies, we go on the oral contraceptive pill. Because of all of that, we've been left out of those medical studies. So we're taking evidence that's been sort of tested on men and applying it to a really different population. And I think that just leaves women struggling. Um, you know, they, they're struggling with symptoms and quite often just made to feel like, you know, it's all in their head or they just have to accept this as, as getting older. And that's really what I want to change. So I just don't feel that, you know, feeling fatigued, um, having chronic pain or crippling PMS, these things aren't normal. These are your body's distress signals. They're letting you know that something's wrong. This is the early stages of chronic disease and we need to do something now. This is our opportunity to intervene and get you back on the path to, to, to optimal health. Hey, it's Leo here. Just very quickly interrupting this podcast episode to share with you a really exciting announcement. The Nexus team are now available to take on new one-on-one -on -one online nutrition clients. So if you're interested in working with myself or anyone on the team for your nutrition, health or body composition based goals, then follow the link in the show notes and you can see all of the information on what that might look like to work with us. I love that answer so much. I feel so Sorry, it's quite long. <laughs> no, that was, not only was that answer incredible, but you answered my next question, which was going to then be, what is the gender health gap? So how does everything you're saying translate into being a little bit different and a little bit worse ultimately for, for women, which you already answered? So no, that that's incredible. So if you are one of these women that is experiencing chronic health issues or you feel like you're maybe on the way, you know, you're, you're slipping a little bit. You've kind of alluded to how we maybe need to like zoom out a little bit, look at things from a more holistic standpoint and as opposed to those like specialist individual departments. So if a woman comes to you and she is experiencing, you know, you've just said like, you know, PMS, other maybe menstrual cycle related issues, where do you start in terms of like, um, you know, consultation, testing, analysis with that, with that woman? Yeah, so I think we just need to step back and, and really take a really holistic, broad view of everything. Um, so I, I think 
when you, you go to a traditional medical clinic, we just very much focus on those symptoms um, and sort of that disease progression. But we, we never really look into your lifestyle and we kind of pay lip service to things like, yeah, you need to eat better and you need to, to exercise better. But we don't really delve in and, and really sort of support people there. Um, so I suppose when it comes to that, like um, I, I generally start, I have two sort of fairly in-depth questionnaires that people fill out before they come to me. So I'm trying to gather as much information about you and about everything that you do. So what you do on a day-to-day basis, what you work as, what your commute's like, what you're eating, um, what your training is like, and then all of those other symptoms. So your your menstrual cycle, um, are you having PMS? So I really try and gather all of that. And then, you know, um, I just don't think that seeing people in a 10, 15 minute appointment is helpful. It's not enough time. It's not enough time to address those really complex issues. It's not enough time to make people feel heard as well. You know, I, I want more than just, you know, a, an eight minute appointment. So we tend to have quite a long chat about things. Um, and then after that, sort of decide on, on, on what way things are going to go. So there are a range of tests that we can do. Um, there are so many sort of standard like medical blood tests and things that we can can check. Um, I suppose really just depending on symptoms, you know, um, are we going to look at, at one of the sort of endocrine systems? Is it your reproductive access? So that is the, the issue. Is it your metabolic health? And then have a look at those bit of vitamin and mineral deficiencies that are really common as well. Um, so I suppose that's where I start. Um, generally, even after a first appointment, I feel like we're only really starting to, to get into things. And, and really the way I like to work with people is over a longer term. Um, so I like to see you back again and really help you try and progress um, with those lifestyle changes and just really help you make changes that you're going to be able to sustain for life rather than a quick fix. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> I think I'm I'm so happy with this episode and, and being able to you know chat with you because for a long time, I was kind of looking at like, I'd love to go to medical school, really feel like I need that credibility and expertise. And then I've ended up obviously kind of doing, um, you know, working with people more in the way that you are now, albeit obviously not with the, the medical background. So to be able to chat with you and hear kind of your journey from the medical background, the problems you saw with it, and now how you work with clients is, is just amazing to, to hear. So yeah, thank you for sharing that so far. One thing that I think would be really great to get into, because it's probably the most misunderstood word in the fitness industry, uh, and considering this is what you specialize in, is what actually is the definition of inflammation? And why could this potentially be a part of the problem with some people's chronic health issues? So like inflammation, it is sort of, a, it, it's something that is a, a natural process. So if we have an injury or we have an infection, it's when our immune system gets stimulated and it, it, it responds to that stress. Okay, so we start a, a healing reaction from that. The issue is that when that inflammation becomes chronic, okay, so when there are things that are sort of upsetting the body on a long-term basis, that's when that inflammation starts to become a problem. So people who have chronic inflammation, you know, your, your blood is a little bit stickier. It starts to cause damage to the blood vessel walls. It starts to cause um, damage to, to sort of multi-systems and organs. Um, so really it's just, uh, you know, something that was supposed to be protective, but now it's been chronically stimulated um, and that's when it starts to become become damaging. And um, what kind of, if anything, lifestyle interventions can you, well, to go back before we even look at addressing it, I mean, what kind of elements of someone's lifestyle or nutrition are making this a problem in the first place? Yeah, so there's lots of different things here. Um, you know, I think our our nutrition is huge um, and it's something that I am still, you know, learning about and myself, you know, I've, I've been on a huge journey over the last few years as well. Um, 
but we you know, our, our health is a composite of everything that we do on a daily basis and everything that we put into our bodies and the things that we are exposed to um so the the biggest things it's the sort of reliance on the the ultra processed foods um so you know that um packaged foods um if you you know, you're trying to decide if something is processed just have a read at the ingredient list if it's got more than five ingredients in it or it's got you know ingredients that you, you cannot pronounce, it's a processed food and you don't really need it in your diet. Okay, so I think we're relying far too much on that type of food um, and those are going to promote that long-term chronic inflammation as well. I think another thing that's really huge is, is stress. Um, yeah. We're all so stressed out. <laughs> you can see it when you're coming through the airport and public transport. Everyone is just like on the go all the time. And I think so many of us are stuck in that sympathetic activation, that fight or flight response. We've got that cortisol sort of banging away all the time. Um, and I, I think that's a huge, huge problem for so many people. Um, but sort of getting people to really understand that and, and really try and switch things off and make changes can be quite difficult as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that's, I mean, let's spend a minute there if that's okay. Because I think when we strip everything right back, Obviously, the hypothalamus is the same starting point for the nervous system and the endocrine system, right? So a lot of these issues, as you say, are coming down to people being stressed. And it sounds almost quite simple, but it really is obviously the first. I kind of use the analogy when I'm coaching clients. We need to look at what is the first domino to push over. Like what is the best place to start? And we push that domino over and it has a knock-on series of benefits to the other you know, systems or areas of your body. And often that is focusing on stress and stress management. So I would love to know a little bit more in terms of like, firstly, how do you maybe communicate that with clients? Because it's often quite a hard message to get across. Often the, the feedback I get as well, yeah, but I can't do anything about it. So yeah, tell us a little bit more ab about stress, how that affects health and what are maybe some tips or interventions that you give to your clients to help people understand that then maybe focus a little bit more on lifestyle and stress management. Okay, so we, we think of stress, That's um, we have our, our nervous system, we have our sympathetic and our parasympathetic nervous system. Our sympathetic nervous system is our sort of stress response, okay? So when we detect threat or we feel danger, we get sort of secretion of adrenaline and noradrenaline. That's going to stimulate the hypothalamus and eventually we get release of cortisol. When we've got lots of cortisol in our system, it has physiological effects, so we always talk about fight or flight. So if you're getting ready to run from danger, um, it's the things that are going to help you run faster. So you get less blood flow to your stomach. So you're not going to be digesting food at this time. The blood flow is mostly directed to your muscles. It puts your blood pressure up, your, your cardiac output up, your respiratory rate up. Um, so it's really, it's prepping you to, you know, you're on edge. Um, um, and then once the threat is gone, the reverse of that has happened. Okay, so we're supposed to get parasympathetic activation and everything's supposed to come back down to normal. But I think so many of us, we are just living in this state of chronic stress. And so many of the things that we do day to day are stressful. And then we're adding more stress or on top of that with our with our food choices and, and things as well. So we're, we're really stuck in that sympathetic drive all of the time. Um, as I say, it can be difficult to sort of broach this with people. People don't like being told that they're stressed or that it's, you know, a problem. And sometimes I agree if you are, you know, you're a busy woman, you've got kids, you've got a demanding job, maybe you've got parents to look after as well. You know, it, it's it's hard not to be stressed, but there are times when you just have to put yourself first as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I suppose really I am, I am quite practical about these things. Um, 
And like this is something that I do myself when, you know, I feel like I'm I'm tra- I'm starting to get stressed. I, I look at the things that in my life that are causing me stress that I don't need. OK, so there are things in my life that cause me stress that I can't do anything about. But there are also other things that I let into my life that that make things worse. So things that make things worse for me are, you know, uh, things like reading the news a lot and getting very worked up about things like that. I'm um, spending a lot of time on social media Um and what I really try and get people to do is cut down on those external influences. Um, and even just really sort of straightforward things like, you know, if you are really busy throughout the week um, and you're constantly answering emails, answering your phone, checking your phone, we really try and just um, separate things out and, and, and time batch things, if that makes sense. So, like, you don't need to be on your phone all day, every day. If you're checking your emails, you dedicate half an hour in the evening time where you, you sit down and you, you, you sort all of that out. And that lets you, you know, the rest of the time when you're at work be sort of uninterrupted. Um, you're in that state of flow um, and you're really concentrating rather than being constantly interrupted and, and adding more stress in that way as well. I think that's such great advice. <laughs> I absolutely love that. <clears throat> obviously, we're here ultimately having a health conversation. And then most people um, probably going to think about nutrition and exercise, right? So the fact that we're here having like a stress and a social media and a news conversation, I, I absolutely love that because, you know, that's so important. And without doing it on purpose, it's where several of the conversations on the podcast have ended. And you might have actually seen it. I posted, I think, like last week, like four different guests kind of opinions on social media inside one carousel, just because whether, whether we're talking about stress or whether we're talking about relationship with food, uh, gratitude, you know, perception to other people's life. Obviously, social media does have the ability to really influence, you, you know, your nervous system. So no, I think that that's such brilliant advice. Is that kind of part of your like onboarding screening post- process when you're working with a new client? Do you kind of ask them about their social media news habits or how does that look in, in practice? Yeah, so that is something that I would sort of dive into as well. Um and, and, and certainly it's something, so I really like to establish what people are doing in the evening time when they're getting ready for bed and things as well. Because whenever you're stressed, sleep is something that really goes out the window. And something that really interferes with sleep is sort of the use of phone and social media and things sort of late in the evening time. So it's it's something that I try and establish, see what your daily pattern is. And if I think it's, you know, driving things, we just try and set some limits around it. Um, I, you know, I, it's probably unrealistic to say, you know, just delete it. You don't yep. need it. But let's just try and, and set some limits around it. So there's a, a set time of the day where you, you go on, you look, you let these things in and then you put it away. OK, and like Instagram, it's great. Everyone's, you know, all happy all the time. Uh, we all have these perfect lives on Instagram. And so much of it is just not real. Um, and we're, we shouldn't be living our lives, you know, thinking that, you know, our life should look like that because it, it, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> No, I completely agree. One little tip I actually do is I deleted the Instagram app from my home screen. So now I need to open the app store and search for it, Yeah, which doesn't sound like it would change much, but it's just that one extra step that creates that little bit of space between kind of that stimulus and, and response. And then it's just, I start, I find myself opening the app store, then I'm like, what am I doing? So uh, yeah, that's useful. But no, that, yeah, so, so important. I think to, to take that back to female specific health, um, my understanding of kind of stress physiology is, it impacts women a little bit, little bit differently, potentially from like a, you know, an evolutionary survival standpoint, obviously the need for, to be able to reproduce. So I think that everything, when we're talking about stress, it, it can be a little bit worse for women's health, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think, you know, our, our physiology is, is just different. I think women are just more sensitive to things like stress and, and low energy availability and things as well. So, um, it, it, 
you know, we when you look at studies of, of low energy availability, even male-female comparison, so women run into difficulty when they go below 30 to 35 calories per kilogram uh, of fat-free mass. Men don't have any problem until they go less than 15. So there's a big difference yep. there in the way that we react to things. Um, you know, and I also think that women tend to to hold more stress as well. Um, I think we are, you know, trying to live these perfect lives. We're trying to do so much. Um, and, you know, we, we take on sort of more responsibility, um, not more responsibility, we take on more roles. Um, and we're trying to be everyone to everything. And there's a real tendency to put everyone else first and, and put yourself last as a woman. So I think definitely we we, we take on more stress. Um, but yes, those sort of physiological differences. Um, so whenever our, our cortisol is high, when we're in that kind of stress response, um, it, it actually then is going to have effects on your estrogen and your reproductive access. Okay, so if you're you're stressed, um, it, it's going to make you sort of a, a decline in your estrogen. So it's going to have a knock-on effect on your reproductive access, your your thyroid access, um, and and all of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everything. I guess even if you're not too bothered about it from a health standpoint, I know a lot of people listening are kind of into their training and, and performance, but obviously estrogen, anabolic, important for recovery. So times of high stress, I then imagine if I put two and two together, I'm going to associate that with, in, in a woman, like less ability to train hard and recover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, even if you're talking about like overtraining syndrome, then um, that kind of stress absolutely comes into it. So if you're, you're more stressed, you're more sympathetically driven, you've got more cortisol, you're going to be less resilient to stress. And I think we forget, you know, because we enjoy exercise, because we we're told that it's good for us, we forget that it is a stress. Um, and when you're piling stress on stress on stress, yeah, that, that certainly has effects. Yeah. How does that tie into um, yeah low energy availability? I mean that that's obviously you mentioned that a second ago. I think that's it's a really important concept, isn't it? Um, that women need to maybe understand. So it'd be great to get a definition on the board because, as you said, men can definitely go lower before they run into problems. And I see that as an issue because you've got at least fifty percent, but probably more like sixty or seventy percent of coaches are male, right? Whether it's PTs or whether it's like sports teams. So you've got a lot of guys going, or oh, here's what the research says, or maybe they don't even read research, but here's what works for me. And then they're dieting and training women, but they don't understand this difference between the calorie requirements in terms of where things start to go wrong. So yeah, what is the definition of low energy availability and what are kind of some like considerations of that from a, a dieting standpoint? Okay, so um Low en- I'll start with um, sort of what, what relative energy deficiency in sport is and then sort of work back there. So um, that the, the, rel- the red S syndrome is a, sort of a, a physiological and or psychological um, sort of dysfunction um, and it can affect anyone who exercises. And I think that's where the name causes a little bit of confusion because when we say in sport, we, we think that that only applies to athletes, people who are competitive. But this can happen to anyone who exercises, male or female. Okay. Um, and really what happens, so I think that probably we're, we're aware that in, it may affect the menstrual cycle. But you can have this uh, this, this problem with a normal menstrual cycle. So that's okay. the really important thing to recognise as well. So it's a multi-system um, condition. It affects us in, in many different ways. So it can have effects on our immune health, our musculoskeletal health and our metabolic health, as well as our reproductive health. So I think, you know, any woman who is out there who exercises on a regular basis and they are struggling with things like, you know, fatigue, 
they are having difficulty sleeping at night, uh, they're feeling like they're not coping with their training load, they may be picking up sort of more frequent infections um, or more frequent injuries. Those are all signs that you could potentially have, you know, be, be in the red or be at risk here. And this really comes down to our energy availability then. So our energy availability, that is the, the amount of, of calories we have to fuel our basal metabolic rate after we take out what we have spent during exercise. Okay, so our basal metabolic rate that generally sits between 1300 and 1400 calories a day. So, for example, you are on a fairly low calorie diet, you're on 1700 a day Um, you go to the gym and you're out and about all day. So maybe you've burnt an extra 700 as you're out moving around. That leaves you with a thousand left over to fuel those basic physiological demands. So you're already about three or four hundred short. And when we say those basic physiological demands, I mean, this is for, for everything. It's to, to keep your um, heart beating, to keep you breathing, to regulate your body temperature and importantly, to make your hormones as well. So if you're not getting that enough energy in, that's when the body goes into that sort of energy saving mode. OK, so it's deliberately shutting down. You get that sluggish um, kind of thyroid function and um, we get the increasing cortisol, the increasing sympathetic drive. Um, and what that does then is actually increase our appetites. We're going to want to try and eat more. We're going to get more cravings and it has a knock on effect on our estrogen and things then as well. That's actually really interesting. I'd, I'd never really quite appreciated that you could have reds without any menstrual cycle dysfunction. I think I, without thinking about it this directly, just based on what I think I see with clients, I always, I guess, kind of assumed that there would always be some sort of menstrual cycle dysfunction if that was present. So that was actually really interesting. Yeah, no, it, it, you, you can have a completely normal menstrual cycle and, and still be in, in low energy availability. Um, and I think something else that you commonly see is maybe people who have quite do bad sort of abdominal pain or abdominal cramps. They've been told they've got irritable bile, but that can be a really common way for this to present as well. So anything that you sort of can't explain, anything unusual, um, it, it's certainly worth looking at further. Yeah, brilliant. I think that for me then begs the question, if all of those issues are, are possible when a female is, is dieting, um, how do we set up a, a female for a successful fat loss phase if that is their goal, which I know is a, a very open ended question. But <laughs> what would maybe some key like tips be in terms of setting up a successful diet for a female that maybe we don't appreciate in the context of just normal dieting for a guy? I think you have to be really careful with with dieting and females, particularly females who are active Um and generally, I suppose when people come to see me, they are generally struggling. They generally feel unwell. And yes, body composition is usually something that they mention, but there's so much else going on um, and their bodies are really quite stressed out that generally I would say that when you're in that state, you're probably not ready to be in a fat loss phase. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if you have any of those things, say if you're, if you're not sleeping, um, if you sort of feel absolutely exhausted when you get out of bed in the morning if you have any menstrual cycle issues and um, if you're feeling very stressed I would say if you have any of those things I really would avoid being in a deficit your body is under enough stress at the minute the last thing it needs is is, is you doing that to it and um, all you're going to do is drive that sympathetic nervous system even more so I think generally my approach is um, I, I try and work with people over a longer period of time we try and get you sort of stable again so I I generally don't do any diets to start with we start off with three balanced meals a day regular snacks make sure that you're fueling your training 
And when we have got you know, your PMS under control and when you're sleeping well at night, then we can consider going into a tiny deficit. But say, I think you had done a post on this before about, you know, the, the sort of minimum number of, you know, macronutrient grams that women need per oh, day to be healthy. That was, yeah. yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> so you have to be very careful. And I think, you know, there's this temptation to go super low fat. All of our, our all of our hormones are are sort of derived from cholesterol. So if we're not getting enough fat in our diet, we, we don't have enough to, to actually make all of these hormones as well. So I just think for a woman, you have to be very careful. If you're not feeling great, if there's anything else going on, I would just say let's take it back, put you on maintenance until we get things back under control. I think if you've got those other symptoms, your body's just not ready to be in a deficit. Yeah, I love that. I think there's, um, I first heard that concept from a, a mentor of mine, Luke Lerman, if you're familiar with Luke, um, many years ago, and he calls it a, a prep the prep phase. And um, I think I was, yeah, I was probably like 19 or 20 when I first heard that. But for me, it was, it sounds silly now, but at the time it was just such this big light bulb moment epiphany moment that it's like hold on sometimes a client might have a fat loss goal but you can't diet them because like being in a calorie deficit and doing more exercise makes everything better and obviously now I'm like fully understand that that's not the case but at the time I was just like mind blown so yeah I think that is it yeah it's such an important takeaway isn't it that just because you have a, a a fat loss goal doesn't necessarily mean you're in a position to diet yeah, and you know, I try and not talk about fat loss. I try and not talk about weight loss, but we are we're ultimately trying to sort of um, optimize body composition. But impo- most importantly, just get you feeling well. Mm. You know, I think so often we confuse health as as something that needs to be painful. It needs to hurt. You know, it's it's like a this sort of punishment whenever we're starting a new health plan. And and, and to me, health just not. That health um, is is something that you can sustain. Um, a, a healthy plan is something that's going to leave you feeling energized, strong, and, and and resilient, and not something that's going to make you feel worse. Yeah, brilliant. I think that's yeah. I mean, even calling myself out on my own language, then obviously it is so important to use that language in your content on social media and, and with clients, right, to help kind of change that perception of we're doing this for body composition and to feel good as opposed to a weight loss goal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like, yeah, no, brilliant. I think that I was loving you here. Uh, I was loving hearing you describe the the pre-diet phase so much. I actually forgot what my next question was was going to be. <laughs> but um, I know you wanted to touch on a little bit in terms of female specific health and maybe how the system isn't kind of set up to support that. I know we touched on that a little bit earlier. Um, but yeah, and feel free to give a little bit more insight for the listeners in terms of why maybe the traditional system isn't amazingly set up to support to support female specific health and what are maybe some ways that you can do to kind of advocate for yourself in that system if you do already have a chronic condition and you're looking for, for answers. Yeah, so I suppose up until now, it's really only in the last few years we've started to really appreciate those differences between male and, and female health and, you know, start to, to recognise that, you know, just because this is how a man presents and this is how you manage a man, maybe we should be doing something slightly different for a female as well. And I think for a long time, we just didn't talk about these things. We didn't talk about the menopause. And, you know, um, I think maybe medicine as well, it's kind of a male-dominated world, even still now, and that maybe... The, people were a little bit dismissive of, of how much these women were really, really struggling um, to get help. Um so yeah, I, I hope that things are going to start to change. Um, there's been so much more awareness um, um, and, and so much in the media about this as well. So like I, I do think you know things are looking positive from from here. Um, but yeah, how to advocate for yourself? Um, just remember that your symptoms are real. Okay, so you are the one that knows your body. You know when something isn't right. 
So don't let anybody else tell you anything different, okay? And when you're going into the doctor, practice what you're going to say. So it's really easy to get flustered and to to feel intimidated whenever you go in somewhere like that. So practice what it is that you want to say. If you're someone who gets sort of you know, forgetful or, or flustered, write it down. Take some notes with you. That's absolutely fine. If you've got specific symptoms that you want to discuss, you know, try keeping a diary for the few weeks before. It's going to be really helpful for your Great doctor. Sense. If you, you know, if you're able to say this is how often they happen, this is how bad they are, this is how long they last. So that's all of the information that we need to try and help you as well. And so remember, it's okay to disagree with your doctor. You know, that's absolutely fine. And if you disagree with them, just ask them to explain what you know their reasoning. They should be more than happy to sit down and discuss that with you and discuss options. And I think lastly then as well, if you feel you're not getting anywhere, if you feel that that relationship between you and your doctor is broken down, you are entitled to see someone else. So ask to see someone else in the practice or, or, or seek someone else out. But you know, just remember that you know, your symptoms are real. You deserve to be heard. Um, you just sometimes need to, to find that right person. Yeah, that's great advice. So you're telling me that hysteria is not actually a formal diagnosis and the reason <laughs> that all women are going crazy. <laughs> No, I do feel a bit like that myself at times, but no. (laughs) I think that's, um, I think that's actually a really interesting kind of little story and and fun fact. I mean, if you're happy to share kind of what, why is a a hysterectomy called a hysterectomy and what, what, yeah, tell me about that background about hysteria and, and the diagnosis. Yeah, and I think this, you know, goes back for for a long time as well. Like women have always been sort of slightly persecuted. If you even think about sort of the, um, like the the witch hunt trials and things, it was all kind of like these these perimenopausal women, and 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 you know they were probably starting to get um sort of symptoms where they were feeling depressed and things like that as well. So, um, I think for a long time that menopause has always been um sort of treated as a as a a time when women kind of like lose it a little bit. Um, and that is sort of why we are quite dismissive of, of those things um even now then as well um yeah <laughs> yeah wild isn't it I think that um yeah when you were describing that a minute ago it, com- it, it reminded me and I completely forgot I put on social media and I said does anyone know the origins of the word hysteria um I believe it's it's partly Greek and Latin I believe and why kind of a hysterectomy is called that and everyone was like on, you know on a little pole like no like not heard that story and I was just about to go to Ibiza at the time so I was like when I'm back I'm, I'm going to do a post on that and I completely forgot so yeah you've just you've just reminded me I'm going to get that done today because that every, every time I think of that it, it doesn't blow my mind any less that yeah that's just it's crazy isn't it so yep. um yeah the the question I was going back to the uh, setting up a female for dieting success the question I was going to ask is obviously metabolic rate does fluctuate a bit across the cycle increases a little bit in the luteal phase so if a woman does have a cycle because obviously not all women do um, do you kind of change that diet set up that diet approach at all across the menstrual cycle yeah absolutely so you know, we have the, the, the follicular phase, um, so that starts on day one of your bleed. Um, and in this phase, this is when our hormones are low. So we tend to feel better. We feel a bit more energised, a bit more resilient during this time as well. And then as we sort of hit ovulation, that's when things start to change that little bit. So we get that big spike in oestrogen, um, which, which causes the ovulation. And then into the luteal phase, those oestrogen and progesterone levels gradually rise. And then if we you know don't become pregnant, they tail off. And that's when the endometrium lining sheds and we're, we're back to day one again um so yeah that that has big effects um on our metabolism and our immune system and things sort of across that cycle as well so as the body is preparing for pregnancy so you're actively growing an endometrial lining okay so your your 
progesterone is high, so you're not focused on building muscle. It becomes harder to build muscle during this phase. And then because you're sort of like growing uh, something, um, it, your, your metabolism picks up as well. So I, I generally do advise women, particularly active women, to increase their calorie intake by a couple of hundred calories towards those later stages of the cycle as well. And when you think like the, those, those sort of premenstrual cravings that you have, always try and tell women like these these cravings are happening for a reason okay they don't mean that you're weak it doesn't mean that your character is fundamentally flawed you know they're, they're happening because you are you know your, your body needs something okay and it's telling you to reach for those sort of energy dense foods because that's where you're going to get the calories that you, you need much, much quicker so th- those cravings are absolutely valid and that's why we increase the calories towards the end of the cycle then as well i think there are just a few other changes as well um so there's differences in the way we kind of use um, different substrates for energy. Um, so it becomes harder to sort of store glycogen and things towards those later stages of the cycle. So if you're someone who's doing endurance type training, really important that you feel those training sessions. OK, so mm-hmm. if you're going on a particularly long cycle, you know, take something with you. You're going to need to snack during that um, because you're not going to be able to access your stored glycogen just so easily and you're going to need to make sure that you refuel afterwards as well. Interesting. Is that the, the lower estrogen and slightly worse insulin sensitivity because of the lower estrogen or what's the, the reason for that? Yeah, so the the um, whenever your um, estrogen is, is sort of unblocked by your progesterone or not blocked by your progesterone, you're, you're just um, able to, to, to use those carbohydrates much more easily. Um, whenever we kind of move into that later stage, we're kind of more sort of storing fat and things as well. So it's just, um, yeah, we're not able to access that and use it just so easily then. So we need to be taking more in at the time just to keep you topped up. Yeah, interesting. No, that's really great advice. I mean, let's talk a little bit about exercise, if, if that's okay, because obviously um, you've got your other qualifications in, in that space and that's a, a focus on your training. You actually mentioned earlier, you, you just signed up for Ash Wisman's mentorship, which is super exciting to kind of offer an even better experience for, for in-person um, clients. So, which, I, yeah, I absolutely love. Obviously, he's great and his, his course is great. So tell me a little bit about how you see exercise playing into this in terms of someone's um you know health and lifestyle but also what you mentioned earlier which was really interesting was obviously why they're experiencing pain so yeah how do you see exercise kind of fitting into this bigger picture yeah so exercise is i suppose it's a it's it's a difficult thing to balance we have you know one end of the spectrum where we we can't get people to do anything and then we have this other end of the spectrum where people are probably doing a little bit too much and say we we forget that exercise is a stress um and you know, if we're doing too much and we're not recovering, we're going to run into issues with that as well. Um, so I've sort of forgotten the question. That's okay. So, <laughs> well, yeah, just what, what I found really interesting is, well, yeah, two things. So I think, again, as we've kind of uh, alluded to, when you're coming from that like medical background a lot of the time it's as you said it's like you just work directly in that specialty so but obviously exercise is important to kind of reduce inflammation and improve chronic pain so I find that just yeah brilliant that you're kind of incorporating that with your clients and then what you said earlier was really interesting in terms of if someone's experiencing that pain in their shoulder you know there's a a large variety of reasons why that could be and you wanted to understand more about the exercise mechanics and anatomy side of that to kind of complement what you were already an expert in and I just found that kind of really interesting so yeah obviously as you said exercise sits on this continuum and some people are kind of doing too much which is maybe nearly as or just as bad as as doing too little so where does kind of what kind of role does exercise play in improving someone's health and and reducing chronic pain and chronic inflammation yeah so um 
like we when we we exercise our skeletal muscles releases IL six, and whenever we're releasing that sort of myokine IL six, that is actually an anti-inflammatory. Okay, so it does have direct anti-inflammatory properties, as well as that, like we we are actively strengthening our muscle tissue. So as we start to age, we we lose muscles. So we we our, our muscles start to atrophy um, and, and particularly in women after the menopause we start to lose about 3-5% to 5% of our muscle mass every decade as we, we go on so if you're not exercising if you're not giving your muscle a, a stimulus to grow and be strong you're going to run into trouble later down the line and it's like our muscle not only is it really important for like our, our skeletal system or our, our sort of locomotion and, and protecting our joints, but it has sort of metabolic effects as well. So we've got healthy skeletal muscle that helps us to manage our, our glucose and our insulin sensitivity better. OK, so we're actively if we've got skeletal muscle that works well, we're able to, to soak up that that glucose much better. Um, so it can actually help with that sort of type two diabetes and chronic disease as well. Yeah, super important. I think, why would you say maybe women in particular aren't quite as active or don't enjoy exercise as, as much as men? Because I believe the statistics in the UK, according to the, the government website, are 42% of women don't meet the minimum activity requirements. Um, I believe it's only like 25 or 20 something percent of men. So, I mean, in firstly, maybe in general, non-gender specific, why are people not loving exercise like me and you do? And what can we do to maybe try and help and support that? Um, and then would you say there's any gender differences as to why maybe women aren't quite as active as men? Um, yes, yeah, so it's tricky. And like, I don't think there's many people out there who wouldn't sort of know that being inactive and, and being sedentary is bad for your health. But there's still this resistance to it. And I don't know if it's an enjoyment thing, but maybe we're kind of lulled into this false sense of security. So people in their 40s, maybe they're a little bit overweight, but you think to yourself, I'm not as unhealthy as so-and-so, or, you know, I don't have time to worry about that now, but I'll, I'll, I'll sort it out later on. Um, and it's really important to remember that just because you feel okay now, it doesn't guarantee that you're in optimal health, and it certainly doesn't guarantee that you're going to be, you know, well in, in 10, 15 years' time. And I think as well that, there's this sort of belief that our health is predetermined, that it's genetic, and we've really lost that sense of agency over our own health. You know, it's just something that happens to me. I have no control over this. But all of these chronic diseases, we know that if you make lifestyle changes, not only are they preventable, but they're reversible as well. So if you look at even type 2 diabetes, there's about 7 million people in the UK who have pre-diabetes. So that means they have abnormal blood sugars, but the blood sugars are not bad enough to be called diabetic. But when you are pre-diabetic, this, this is still causing you problems. So that, you know, prolonged period of time when your blood sugar is higher than normal, is still going to be causing problems with your circulatory system, your heart, your nervous system, all of those things. So I think what I would say to people is, you know, we're just going to remember that um, illness to wellness continuum again so we've got optimal health on one side and, and disease down at the other we have this huge period of time where we're sitting in the middle okay so you don't just jump from one end to the other um, it's this time in the middle when we're pre-diabetic when those things are starting to go on that's when we need to intervene and that's when we can make those really significant changes to our, our long-term health as well so I don't know if it is to do with enjoyment, but I think it's just that lack of realisation that, you know, I can take control of my health and the things that I do now are actually going to make such a huge difference later down the line. I think if we could really get that message across, I think that would help. 
yeah do you think i think that's such a yeah great advice such a good um perspective as well do you think part of the problem is that we set the the bar maybe the barrier to entry quite high in terms of what exercise means because my understanding of the activity requirements is that even a little bit of of light to moderate activity goes a long way it does yeah let's just do something doesn't matter um and if you don't want to go to a gym that's absolutely fine um so you know any physical activity is going to count so whether that is just going for a walk doing the gardening carrying your shopping home all of those things are going to count so the more you move you know the more that's going to help um so it doesn't necessarily have to be exercise it doesn't have to be a really structured activity just get out there move do something that you enjoy and something that's fun and every little bit that you do no matter when you start it's all going to add up and it's all going to make a difference yeah i think that's such an important message to communicate isn't it i mean if you look i don't know if you watched the blue zones documentary um recently came out on netflix i mean pension fraud aside in those blue zone areas as to how old these people actually live um that aside which you know is important but i found w- what was really interesting in that is out of all five of those blue zones none of them went you know there was no gyms in these areas no one was going to the gym they just had very very active lifestyles through sport through community through gardening um through work and none of them actually exercised in the traditional sense that we think of it in terms of going to a gym and doing a crossfit class it was literally just an active lifestyle yeah and i think that is just as important as it's really that being sedentary is the thing that's going to do the most harm so let's just get moving yeah, I love that. Do you have any thoughts on why there's potentially a discrepancy between genders and meeting activity requirements? Yeah, and I think there are just huge differences between men and women the whole way through. And I think even this goes back as, as, as early as puberty, even, you know, men hit puberty, they get more testosterone, they sort of put on muscle, they get strong, they get powerful. Women hit puberty and that doesn't really happen. So we get more estrogen and we, we don't have as much muscle mass. Maybe you start to put on a little bit of weight. And I think, you know, around that time, your body's changing. You just don't feel as, as confident um, as you would. And, you know, I think exercise becomes a little bit harder as well. Um, so I think even right from the beginning, there's there's those differences um, where women just don't feel as comfortable and as, as confident. Um, and then as time goes on, like the less you've done, the less experience that you've had in the gym, um, you know, it's just a, a completely foreign concept and it feels like too much to, to, to get going. I really think what we need to do is, you know, start with um, working with these young girls, you know, at a much earlier age, get us introduced to strength training. Um, like I know even when I was at school, we did have a gym, but the girls didn't go there. The boys went there. Okay, so the girls didn't do any strength training. We went and did dance classes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so like, we need to stop those differences um, we need to get girls doing all of those type of activities sort of under supervision when they're young um, build their confidence make sure that they have the, the skills and the movement qualities that they need from an early age and, and that's what's going to keep them going um, and more active in the longer term yeah that makes a lot of sense I think as well obviously women experience a few other potential life stages and and complications or or specific health issues right that men don't experience so maybe if you're prenatal postnatal you're less likely to be able to exercise if you're going through menopause maybe that stops you exercising um yeah you know women obviously maybe experience endometriosis then you're in a lot of pain maybe you're less likely to exercise so men definitely have it easier from a from a life stage and diagnosis standpoint don't they when it comes to kind of reducing the barriers to to fit activity into your life 
Yeah, everything is a little bit more smooth with a man. They don't seem to have those like sort of drastic transitions the way that that woman do. Um, and certainly you don't get that hormonal fluctuation throughout the month. Yeah. So everything is just much more on an even keel. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I really hope in, you know, 10 years time or so, we look at those activity statistics and there's not really the same difference between genders so that's that's the goal yeah and that everyone is doing a bit more not just female but we're all doing a little bit more yeah yeah, yeah, for sure um if you think of all of your female clients that you've got at the moment what kind of like one message or one value or one bit of education would you absolutely or one like mindset shift would you absolutely love all of them to just have today um yeah, I think what I see again and again is that we get this message from both the, the fitness industry and the medical industry that if we want to be healthy, we need to move more and eat less. Um, and while that does apply to some people, it's a massive overgeneralization. And the less you eat and the more and more that you move, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be healthier. So a lot of the women that I see, they really feel like they've tried everything. And when they say they've tried everything, They've done so many really drastic things. So they've, you know, a thousand calories a day. They've done keto. They've done low fat. They've done low carbohydrates. So they've, they've really thrown themselves in the deep end and really punished themselves. And all of it tends to leave them feeling dreadful. So the message that I would like to get across is that if your health plan leaves you feeling awful, it's, it's you know, it's it's not healthy, it's not sustainable, and it's absolutely not necessary. So your your health plan needs to be, you know, we're, we're trying to create a lifestyle. We're trying to give you something that you can do day in, day out for the rest of your life that's going to leave you feeling energised, capable, um, and, and just ready to tackle anything. So that's the big message. Yeah, that that health does not mean that this has to be painful. Um, health is something that should be making you, you, you feel good, um, and that's what I try and get across. <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. If obviously you've gone on a really amazing journey with your own career over, you know, a a good few years of various different qualifications and expertise, if you could go back in time to, you know, and you could talk to yourself as your first starting medical school, what kind of one bit of advice or one thing would you say to to that, Carrie, in terms of like, this is now what you understand, or this is now how you see health and fitness that you would love to have understood or be able to go back in time and kind of tell yourself when you're starting medical school? Um, well, I suppose in terms of my own health and fitness, I did so many things wrong for so many years and I fell into the same trap that I tell my woman not to fall into. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose at times with the medical training and then trying to be fit and healthy on top, I really, really pushed myself into an absolute hole at times. Um, yeah, so I think I would like to go back and tell myself that... <sighs> You, you don't have to do it all. You don't have to be perfect. And it is okay to take it a little bit easier on yourself. It's okay to take rest days. It's okay to relax. Um, and all of those things are really important for, for, for your long-term health. And I think that if I had, you know, taken it a bit easier on myself and relaxed a little bit more, I'd have been less sort of at that burnout stage really by the time I had finished then as well. Yeah, which would have obviously been useful to preempt preempt that, of course. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really great advice. Um, We've obviously covered some amazing topics and and lots of really, really important conversation points today. Is there anything that you feel like that we've kind of missed or that you want to add in hindsight to any of those talking points from from today? Um, Oh, goodness. Um, I'm not sure now. (laughs) That's fine. We'll go to the... uh, Tell, tell the listeners and viewers all of the amazing places they can find out more about you and the programs that you offer. And if that triggers anything in your mind, we can uh, we can go back to adding any any extra talking points. Um, 
Yeah, so I am on Instagram as the Movement Medic. Um, to be honest, my Instagram has been a little bit quiet of, of late, but I will try and get back on there again. Um, I also have uh, my own website, so themovementmedic.org, um, and I have just some information about my services and things on that. Um, I am currently based at a CrossFit gym in Belfast, so I have a clinic room at CrossFit Berserk in Belfast, and that's where I can do one-to-one sessions and I also do the the movement assessments as well um but I I can work online so there are um you know I can do online consultations um and also there are lots of different companies that will do blood work um sort of remotely and things as well so that really has opened all of that up to me um I'm sort of trying to move away from doing just one-off sessions um, and I have a 12-week Thrive for Life program uh, and within that what I'm trying to do is give you all of the education about how to work with your female cycle. Um, We have a really good look at your nutrition, we have a look at stress management, we have a look at sleep, all of those things um, in in, in 12 weeks that runs um, via an app. So there's absolutely loads of education on that um, and that's really how I feel things work best um i think it's very difficult to make a lot of progress in a a short period of time and say health is for life and and this is something that's all just part of that journey so um, i'm trying to get people onto that kind of uh, three-month program um um, to really make those sustainable changes yeah no that's brilliant i absolutely absolutely love that i mean the fact that you're still yeah coaching in person I, i just love that so much obviously exercise and meeting people in person and creating an environment where someone can go and train and and feel safe and have a good in person experience i think is such a valuable part of someone's health and fitness journey so yeah i love that that's that's an option that you offer thank you so much for coming on today again appreciate it so so much to to fly over to come on and, and share those really important messages i'm incredibly grateful so yeah thank you so much for your time and i really look forward to getting this episode out in, in a few weeks okay no thank you for having me i've really enjoyed being here and i hope that i have um given some people um some advice that actually helps so yeah yeah oh you know you have (laughs) that was incredible thank you so much okay thanks that was so good i think i sort of fluffed a couple of there no (laughs) don't worry don't worry that was amazing i think you sort of sometimes ask a couple of questions and i maybe didn't quite answer them so sorry no that'd be silly it's (laughs) i think the the answering you know you how you perceive a question is do you know what I mean? Is is however you want to however you want to answer it. So it's not necessarily that that question needs to be answered. How you interpret the, the okay. question is, is super important. But no, that was great. Like so many amazing points, so valuable, um, and very like yeah, on brand in terms of the messages that without necessarily on purpose, but just by picking the right guest, you always kind of end up with a lot of the same answers, but obviously just communicated in, you know, a different way, which is great because people need to hear those same messages that, you know, (laughs) female physiology is a little bit different, more training is not good, less calories is not good, stress is a problem, like a lot of the episodes have underlying you know, those same kind of messages, but that's what's, you know, needed, that is the right information, so no, it was unreal. Good, okay, Thank you so much, I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we can If you've enjoyed today's episode, it would be amazing if you could do us a massive favour and leave us a review and even if possible a comment. The reason why this is so useful for us is it allows us to know which type of content and which guests are best going to be relevant for you and your goals so that we can continue to make the podcast even better for you in the future. Thank you so much so far for all of your support on the Women's Wellness Show.